Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Yesterday's paper is what I call it, a sort of outreach paper from my current project, which is on the history of the Salmonellas from 1880 to, I guess, 1975. Um, now, so the word Salmonella has become familiar to the nation in recent years uh, as a cause of many food poisoning outbreaks. But it's perhaps not generally known that the word designates a vast family of bacteria. There are some 2,000 of these uh, whose natural hosts variously include human beings, cattle, pigs, ducks, chickens, tortoises, cats and dogs, rats and mice, and guinea pigs. And when I began this project, I intended to use typhoid, which is the most virulent of these organisms to man, as a vehicle to study the relationship between epidemiology and public health practice. And along the way, I ended up including the food poisoning organisms to cover the salmonellas as a family. And also, uh, inevitably, the relationship between epidemiology and the laboratory. Not being a scientist by training, I had hoped to stay clear of hard science, but I came reluctantly to recognise the developments in microbiology were an integral part of my story. And in this, I resemble my heroes, the epidemiologists, the students of disease outbreaks, who began by resisting the claims of bacteriology on their discipline and ended by, if not embracing it, then at least reaching a working accommodation. And this accommodation came about over a period of some 50 years, during which the brash young science of bacteriology gradually acquired an increasingly sophisticated set of tools for analysing and identifying disease-causing bacteria. Now, the history of epidemiology as a medical specialty is generally considered to have begun in 1850 with the establishment of the Epidemiological Society of London. For most of its first 70 years, epidemiology was an observational science based in the study of disease patterns as revealed by mortality figures, epidemic outbreaks, and interest in medical inquiry. Above all, it was related to the behaviour of disease out in the field what did in fact come to be called from the 1920s field epidemiology. In its pre-1950 incarnation, field epidemiology was outbreak investigation, the search for the causes of disease outbreaks. It was not something that its practitioners had been specifically trained to do, although by the end of the 19th century, many of them had a diploma in public health. And many of its most successful practitioners had a background in general practice, as, for example, did John Snow and William Budd, who respectively identified the causal connection between cholera and typhoid and infected water. From the 1850s, however, public health legislation created a new class of medically trained professionals whose business was, at least in part, that of investigating the causes of disease and epidemic outbreaks. These men were employed either by the government's central medical department, later the Ministry of Health, or by the local authorities. And they regarded themselves as professional epidemiologists, professional students of disease. The medical department was set up in 1858, 
and the emergence of professional epidemiologists took place at much the same time as that of modern criminology and the literary genre of crime fiction. The word detective, meaning a member of the police force employed to investigate specific cases, was first recorded in 1856. It's no accident that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was trained as a doctor, or that when he embarked on his career as a writer of detective fiction with A Study in Scarlet in 1889, he did so, according to his own memoirs, with the intention of devising stories where the detective's methodology would be, quotes, something nearer an exact science than had been the case in previous examples of the genre, which had generally relied heavily on coincidence. Accordingly, Conan Doyle's creation, Sherlock Holmes, kept records of known criminals, used scientific and technical reference works, and conducted experiments that involved human bodies, test tubes, and other paraphernalia of medical research. But with all that science, Holmes still relied on common sense and observation in resolving his problems. A study in Scarlet, for instance, shows Holmes amazing the police by a simple deduction about the villain's height based on the observation that you write on a wall at your own eye level. So at the core of Holmes's methodology was the application of a knowledge of human and animal behavior. In this respect, the epidemiologists worked on a similar principle, from a knowledge based on observation of the behavior of disease. Like Conan Doyle, they considered their methodology to be, quotes, something nearer an exact science. And consciously or unconsciously, the language of criminology flowed into that of epidemiology. Epidemiologists were constantly using such words as investigation, clue, inquiry, detection, evidence, and testimony. And many of their written reports were, in fact, of a high literary quality. Epidemiology as a science of observation reached its pinnacle in the 1890s. In that decade, the medical department's inspectors investigated a number of typhoid outbreaks which furnished excellent examples of that, their particular methodology. One classic account is that by Frederick William Barry into the causes of typhoid in Teesdale in 1890. Typhoid had broken out over a wide area north and south of the River Tees in the six weeks from September the 7th to the 18th of October, and Barry was dispatched to discover why. So at the end of November, in grey, damp weather, he set out on horseback from the market town of Darlington to follow the course of the River Tees towards its source. And on his journey, he explored numerous hamlets, villages and farmsteads before reaching the pretty market town of Barnard Castle, an inland watering place much favoured as a summer holiday resort by residents of the East Coast towns. Now, Barnard Castle lies high on the Durham side of the river, facing the villages of High and Lone Stainsforth on the Yorkshire side. Barry's eyes, however, were not for the grandeur of the scenery. His mission was to discover one particular feature of this natural environment, the extent to which it was polluted by human sewage. And as he tracked the drainage condition of houses, farms, and settlements, and the fall of drains, sewers, and open ditches into the river, his concern mounted. On reaching Barnard Castle, he was appalled. Public and private drains charged directly onto the riverbanks. Privies, urinals, and water closets brazenly emptied their contents onto the foreshore of the river. Houses and steep retaining walls fronting the river 
contained many openings which discharged liquid filth and layers of solid sewage lay caked along the foreshore. Never in his whole experience, Barry wrote, had he seen, quote, such a stinking mass of abominations as lay along the Tees at Barnard Castle at the time of his visit. Nor were things much better on the Yorkshire side. Here the Swan Inn's privy chute, your rhinal, water closet and stables all voided themselves onto the foreshore, while a projecting privy, common to four houses and supported on, quotes, corbels of some architectural pretensions, dropped its contents in full public view. Before Barry could finish his investigations, the, new, the area was hit by a second typhoid outbreak, which lasted from the 28th of December, 1890, until the 7th of February, 1891. Nearly 1,500 cases were estimated to have occurred in the combined outbreaks. As a result of the second outbreak, Barry's report was delayed, and he was able to make use of the 1891 census data in constructing his final analysis. His conclusions were stark. Fecal pollution of the Tees, aggravated by heavy rainfall and flooding, which had washed the filthy foreshores clean, and the consumption of polluted Tees water by local residents had generated both outbreaks. During the two periods, 15 typhoid cases had occurred among Tees water drinkers for every one occurring among those who did not drink Tees water. The evidence for Barry's indictment of the Tees water supply was circumstantial. He had no specific scientific proof for his conclusions, but these were nonetheless accepted by his contemporaries. And I here accommodate my respected colleague, Michael Neve, who insists I must use an Anglo-Saxon four-letter word at least once in this presentation. The fact that there was shit everywhere was good enough for Victorian scientific experts. Barry's investigation was characteristic of late Victorian observational epidemiology, a broad and detailed survey of the terrain in which the unwanted typhoid, typhoid cases had occurred. His report gave a detailed statistical ana analysis of the outbreaks and their incidents in the 10 registration districts involved. The sanitary circumstances of the districts were described in detail. The local arrangements for the disposal of human excreta and refuse were also detailed. And he recorded the sewage and drainage provision and water supply. Drinking water provision in the typhoid-affected districts, which were supplied by the Dartington Corporation Waterworks, received particular attention. And it was for this purpose that he'd undertaken his journey upriver. He gave the, local history, of the, he gave the history of the local corporation water undertaking since 1870 in full. And in all these respects, his report was a model of the many investigations undertaken by himself and his colleagues in the 1890s. The department's investigators looked into more than 20 outbreaks of typhoid in the 1890s in that decade. Although not all contained the detail of the T's report, the principle underlying each remained constant, a thoroughgoing inquiry into the environmental circumstances uh, of the affected districts. Collectively and thematically, the dominant feature of these reports was man's treatment of and relationship to the urban and rural landscapes he inhabited and the ways in which his unthinking abuse of these environments contributed to human illness and death. Thus, typhoid was brought to Rotherham in Yorkshire and to Camborne in Cornwall through human pollution of upland gathering grounds. 
the back garden pit privies of the houses along the Gaywood River contaminated the water supply of King's Lynn. The use of town manure, more shit, much prized by farmers, brought typhoid to the villages of Rydale in North Yorkshire. A strong sense of environmental consciousness runs through these reports. Images of the natural and built environment are vividly invoked. The black slick of ancient sewage that stained the river for a hundred yards below, the ga below Gainsford. The privy on its corbels above the river at Stainsforth. The rain-soaked gardens along the Gaywood into which the householders emptied the shit from their pots privies. The River Trent, quotes, almost from its source polluted with sewage, in which dismayed riverside fishermen viewed human feces floating down the tide. In all these accounts, there is no mention of bacteriology, the latest scientific tool to enter the medical landscape. The discovery of the specific organism of typhoid in 1880 had not resolved the etiological problems surrounding the disease. Bacteriology was a young and insecure science at this time, as Christopher Hamlin has notably shown. And the path to secure bacteriological knowledge was far from smooth. Researchers wrestled with new and often clumsy techniques and were haunted by the shadows of past beliefs. Many doubted the causal role of the bacillus because it could not be found in the blood of typhoid patients. Others argued that it must, like anthrax, exist in a spore state in nature because of the, quotes, very prolonged vitality outside the animal body in sewage, in water, and in soil. Uh, in 1892, uh, the professor of pathology at Cork University noted wryly that within the last two years, the subject of the causation of typhoid had developed into, quotes, as complicated a network of confusing possibilities as is to be met with in the whole range of scientific medicine. And it did not help matters that the bacillus itself was an elusive entity, difficult to isolate under laboratory conditions. Nonetheless, Bacteriology had claims to make on the science of epidemiology and was seen by interested parties to do so. <clears throat> Between 1895 and 1905, Britain was embroiled in a prolonged food scare over the relationship between sewage-contaminated oysters and typhoid infection. In the course of this, the oyster traders sought to exploit the uncertainties of bacteriology in their own defence, while practitioners of the new science made claims to expertise that overrode the older logic of observation. In 1895, the medical department commissioned a traditional environmental survey of levels of faecal pollution in oyster lanes around the British coast, which concluded by condemning several of them. But this did not settle the dispute. The oyster merchants were combative in defence of their own industry. Threatened by the epidemiologists, they turned to the bacteriologists who seemed happy to take up the challenge. In 1898, we find the Professor of Natural History at Liverpool University, William Abbott Herdman, who worked with the British Oyster Association, declaring resoundingly, quote, that the oyster, like the woman, is better not to have had a damaged past. <laughs> the mollusk's more or less damaged character, he continued, necessitated that it, quotes, come into court, the scientific laboratories, and request the fullest possible investigation. So that's his claim to expertise. A crisis came in November 1892 when guests at a mayoral banquet at Winchester and Southampton came down with typhoid. The medical department on the job, William Timbrell Bulstrode, conducted a menu analysis 
which together with circumstantial evidence, the one waiter at the Winchester banquet who had eaten oysters also fell ill, strongly indicated that oysters were to blame. Moreover, the shellfish had been sourced from layings at Emsworth, which had been suspect in the 1895 survey, and in addition had for some months been popularly blamed for an ongoing scattering of typhoid cases in Portsmouth. Both Bulstrode and the local medical officer of health for Portsmouth came under pressure from the Emsworth oyster traders to take samples of both water and oysters for bacteriological analysis. Bulstrode, who had undertaken the 1895 survey, reminded the traders firmly that their layings were very close to the Emsworth sewer outfalls and that Emsworth itself had suffered unduly from typhoid for many years. In his final report, Bulstrode gave very specific grounds for his rejection of bacteriological analysis. Quotes, No negative testimony, either chemical or bacteriological, would undo the fact that the oysters were laid down within a few yards of the main sewer. Moreover, a positive result in either case would be superfluous. And he continued, quotes, This attitude I adopted because I considered that if this outbreak of enteric fever had been caused by the Emsworth oysters, the science of epidemiology should be competent to demonstrate the fact. For Bulstrode and for his colleagues at the medical department, epidemiology was an authoritative science in its own right. It had an expertise and authority that stood independently of the claims of bacteriology. If bacteriology did not, in the years around 1900, have the authority to displace observational epidemiology in the analysis of field outbreaks, new techniques were beginning to emerge that would eventually clarify much bacteriological confusion and provide new investigative opportunities. While medical department bacteriologists struggled through the 1890s to assess the viability of typhoid bacilli in water, soil and sewage, a new approach to bacteriological identification was introduced into England by a young Cambridge scientist named Herbert Durham. Durham had studied in Vienna, where he'd been introduced to the new science of serology, the study of blood sera and their effects. And he had learnt that differing reactions when exposed to sera was one way of telling different strains of bacteria apart. Called in to help confirm veal pies as a source of an outbreak of food poisoning at Oldham in 1898, Durham took blood samples from survivors and showed that they had suffered infection with Salmonella enteridis. In the scientific papers which he published out of this episode, Durham demonstrated not only that serology could be used to identify human infection with a specific bacillus in the living patient, as opposed to in morbid tissues, but also that distinct varieties of bacteria could be distinguished from each other by their reaction to sera containing known antibodies. During and after World War I, Durham's work was taken up by several microbiologists working at the Lister Institute in London. But it was at the Lister that some of the most significant interwar laboratory work with bacilli was undertaken, resulting in the discovery of bacterial variation, the antigenic analysis of bacterial strains, and, in 1932, the identification of the typhoid VI antigen, the typhoid antibody which persists in 90% of typhoid carriers. During these, years, however, a during these years, a classification scheme for the salmonellas based on their antigenic relationships was worked out, 
and a significant number of new members of the family identified. But the emphasis of this research bore little relation to the concerns either of epidemiology or of public health practice. Identification and classification were the main drivers of this lab research, and the benefits for epidemiology, which came with the naming of specific bacterial types, and the ability to distinguish different strains after a fashion through antigenic analysis, were largely coincidental. Uh, taxonomy, as an eminent French microbiologist said to me recently, is an all-absorbing and obsessive pursuit, and those addicted to it have no eyes or concerns for anything else. So at this period, uh, it was this fascination which engaged a great many scientists across the world. By eight, 1939, some 80 different salmonella types had been identified, but only half a dozen of them had been found in Britain. Uh, the British microbiologist Graham Selby Wilson later noted of the broad field of interwar microbiology, quotes, a vast amount of fresh bacteriological knowledge had been accumulated, much of which remained academic and unapplied, except on trivial scale, to the practical control of disease. In the case of typhoid, however, two developments had brought better understanding, if not greatly enhanced control, since 1900. The first of these was recognition of the healthy carrier. The existence of carrier states in which apparently healthy people who were often unaware of ever having been infected by typhoid, but nonetheless passed living typhoid bacilli in their feces and urine, had first been observed by the American Army epidemiologists during the Spanish-American War of 1898. In 1906, a phenomenon was rediscovered in Germany and realized by English public health workers and epidemiologists in 1907. In the years before the First World War, the issue of the healthy carrier provoked debate but had little impact on British public health practice. It was noted, for example, that while carriers must have been around forever, the incidence of typhoid had been falling for decades past. Environmental management continued to be strongly argued as the undoubted key to the control of the disease. Moreover, British clinicians shrank from imposing on convalescent typhoid patients the repeated demands for faecal and urine samples, which identification of carriers required. It was only in the interwar period that the role of the carrier in maintaining endemic typhoid and in generating outbreaks began to become clear. And this came about partly as a result of continuing sanitary improvements and partly because, in the second significant development, antigenic analysis now permitted the identification of different strains of typhoid. On the one hand, the pre-war pattern of higher typhoid incidents in the northern industrial towns was replaced by a low-level general diffusion of cases across the country within which explosive outbreaks stood out even more clearly. And on the other Laboratory analysis from the 1930s permitted individual index cases to be identified, when identified, to be related to specific outbreaks. Although the general death rate from typhoid stood at just one per 100,000 population, the Ministry of Health recorded an average of between four and six epidemic outbreaks a year. In the investigation of these outbreaks, environmental considerations retained a high profile. As one medical officer of health noted somewhat frivolously, but again using the language of detection and the law, quotes, the sanitarians 
liberated from the inside of drain pipes by a grateful nation, gambled joyfully at their meetings and fought each other mirthfully as to whether typhoid accessories, before, during and after the fact, were 19 or 20. Was it the water supply or the milk? Was it the absence of scavenging or bad scavenging? What part was played by watercress, celery, brawn, ice cream, oysters, mussels, fried fish, with or without chips? Each and every one of these was flogged to death, and most, if not all, were convicted at the bar of medical science, my italics. The continued environmental emphasis was partly because of the recognised importance of water and milk as vehicles for sudden explosive incidents, and partly because of the difficulty experienced in many cases in tracing the source of infection. At Barnes, London, in the summer of 80, early summer of 1930, for example, prolonged inquiries into places and persons by both the local medical officer and the Ministry of Health inspector failed to uncover the source of a geographically scattered and socially democratic outbreak. These problems were worse in urban areas. In the countryside, it was easier to pinpoint carrier infection. Thus, it was noted by the medical officer for Aberdeenshire in 1923 Quotes, carriers usually become recognised by careful epidemiological surveys in connection with repeated cases in a given locality in association with some particular individual over a period of time. Epidemiological observation, not laboratory analysis, was still the primary player. But increasingly, bacteriology played an important supplementary part in the elucidation of outbreaks. The normal practice was to undertake a broad epidemiological survey to identify the likely route of infection, water, milk, foodstuff, and to work backwards to the origin, towards the origin of infection. The outbreak at Malton in the North Riding of Yorkshire in 1932 illustrates this progression. This outbreak began with a farm worker employed some miles away from the town who had complained of headache and loss of appetite and was dispatched to the Malton Public Assistance Institution, otherwise known as the Workhouse Infirmary, on the 23rd of September. A month later, cases of enteric began to appear in the town. After 30 cases had been notified in the space of three weeks, the Ministry of Health sent in one of its senior epidemiologists, William Vernon Shaw. The Ministry's concern reflects the potential seriousness of these episodes despite the overall decline in death rates since 1870. In this particular outbreak, for example, there was a total of 270 cases with 23 deaths. So this was quite a significant episode. Now, even before Shaw arrived, the Malton Town Council had worked out that the outbreak was waterborne. They had been there before. Malton was one of the Rydale settlements that had suffered extended typhoid outbreak infection in the early 1890s. In fact, in 1894, the Central Medical Department had urged the council to abandon its existing water supply, an injunction which the authority had ignored. The town's water supply was drawn from a well, the Lady Well, close to the River Rye, and was pumped up to a reservoir from which it was delivered untreated to the local population. Having worked out the source of infection, the council ordered the removal of a heap of cow manure next to the well and advised householders to boil all water. On his arrival, Shaw, working with a local medical officer, 
endorsed the waterborne theory and obtained bacteriological confirmation of faecal pollution of the well water from the Ministry's pathological laboratory. Having learnt that the first case had been notified on the 9th of October from the Public Assistance Institution and that this lay 300 yards from the Lady Well, Shaw and Walker proceeded to the institution and discovered the farm worker still in the male sick block. He was a difficult patient. He had refused orders to stay in bed and to use the bedpan and urine bottle provided. He insisted on, us he insisted on using the sick block water closets which drained into a cesspool not far from the lady well. At Shaw's suggestion, the farm worker was removed to the York Isolation Hospital on the 26th of October. Three weeks later, in line with the normal incubation period for typhoid, the number of cases in the town began to fall off rapidly. Meanwhile, the town council had been persuaded to invest in the necessary equipment for chlorinating the water supply, and chlorination began on the 27th of October. So it was technically possible that it was chlorination rather than removal of the index case which had brought about the reduction in incidence. But for sure, bacteriological evidence confirmed the chain of infection from the farm worker. The Ministry's Path Lab had isolated from the stools of 11 Malton typhoid patients a strain of typhoid bacillus with identical cultural reactions to that recovered from the farm worker. It was markedly different restrain responsible for a simultaneous outbreak elsewhere. So by the mid-1930s, bacteriology was beginning to perform, and to be acknowledged to perform, useful services to field epidemiology. As regards typhoid, the antigenic analysis of disease strains was of special importance. And yet, bacteriology was still playing a supporting role. The typical form of the outbreak investigation still began with the big picture, an evaluation of the likely cause, and a logical process of deduction towards conclusion. In what we might call Shaw's last case, because he died aged 63 in 1937, this was still the pattern followed, even if bacteriological testing at every point in the chain led to the final location and detection of the carrier. The summer of 1936 saw an explosive epidemic of milk-borne typhoid on the south coast of England involving the neighbouring towns of Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole. More than 700 cases were recorded between July and September, 200 of them being among summer visitors. Described as, quote, the most important event in the epidemiological history of Britain in the last five years, the episode was eloquent of the dangers accompanying modernising business and farming technologies and of the risks generated by government reluctance to impose costs on industry. In the years since 1920, the bulking of milk supplies had become commonplace as the dairy industry moved from being a locally-based retail operation to become the preserve of big distributors. In this Dorset outbreak, the distributor supplied a population of 10,000 people, besides those served over the counter at 11 retail branches in the three towns. The milk was delivered raw, because despite the acknowledged dangers of disease transmission through infected milk, there was no requirement on the milk industry to pasteurise or other heat-treat its product at this period. Shaw's investigation was exemplary. Beginning from a scattering of household cases, the source of infection was traced to one wholesale milk dealer, 
traced back to one of 37 producers contributing to the bulk supply, to one farm, to infection from one polluted stream, to a carrier occasionally resident in the big house whose septic tank lay beside the stream. The only remaining question was precisely how the water had infected the milk. The Dor this Dorset epidemic was important not simply because of its magnitude. From the epidemiological point of view, the inquiry was exemplary because, as the editor of the medical officer pointed out, quotes, the definite nature of the preliminary facts, the ease with which a situation could be circumscribed, and the luck which repaid the skill of the investigators in tracing the outbreak to its source. He described it as, quote, the clearest piece of epidemiology on record. And yet, while this was a situation as perceived by the epidemiological eye, it could not be denied that the investigation was fundamentally underpinned by the resources and techniques of the laboratory. We must not forget, the epidemiologist noted, that much is owing to recent bacteriological advances. These have provided means not previously available for typing organisms and antibodies. Had it not been for the technique of antigenic analysis, the linking of the carrier at the big house in Dorset to the epidemic in the coastal towns would have been impossible. The particular strain of, of typhoid found in his excreta matched those found in the farmer's son, who had also been infected, and in the patients of Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole. Yet invaluable as antigenic analysis was in resolving particular typhoid outbreak mysteries, it was not itself sophisticated enough to become a tool of detection. In this, it was more akin to the bloodstains in a murder case than to the specific fingerprint which enabled this specific identification of the murderer. It was through the VI antigen, however, that epidemiology acquired its equivalent of the fingerprint. In 1938, two Canadian-based researchers, James Craigie and C.H. Jen, published a new typing scheme for typhoid bacteria, which they expected to transform the prospects of typhoid epidemiology. The phenomenon of bacteriophage, microscopic viruses that grow in bacteria, had been described around 1920. In studying bacteriophages associated with typhoid, typhoid bacilli, Craigie and Yen observed that certain phages would only attack strains of the bacillus that contained the VI antigen. Building on this observation, they developed the scheme known as phage typing, which permitted the differentiation of strains of bacteria within a species. Within the Salmonella group, for example, uh, the individual bacteria like typhoid and the common food poisoning bacterium Salmonella typhimurium had each been regarded as a distinct species. With the development first of phage typing for typhoid and later for Salmonella typhimurium, scientists could now identify multiple types within a species. For the epidemiologists, the technique was swiftly recognized as offering, quotes, an extremely delicate and accurate means of analyzing various aspects of the epidemiology of typhoid. The establishment of the Public Health Laboratory Service in England with the outbreak of war in 1939 provided the institutional context for the further testing and practical application of the new method. The importance of the EPHLS in transforming the prospects for the application of scientific knowledge to the problems of disease prevention 
was widely championed by Graham Wilson in the 1950s. Certainly the example of the Salmonellas substantiates Wilson's claims that the new service brought field and laboratory back into a working relationship that delivered microbiology with practical applications. It was through the PHLS that phage typing became the instrument that shifted the focus of inquiry in field epidemiology from the broad ecological picture to the very specific organism causing the problem in the patients. From the beginning of the war, typhoid, and as the war progressed, the food poisoning salmonellas were among the PHLS's central preoccupations. Uh, Arthur Felix, whose work on the viantigen of typhoid had been an essential foundation for the development of phage typing, was seconded from the Lister Institute to the PHLS with a brief to establish an enteric reference laboratory. Felix developed a phage typing service which came on stream in 1940. And it was not long before his own and his colleagues' investigations, quotes, amply corroborated Craigie's expectations for the importance of phage typing to epidemiology. As anticipated, the new technique greatly facilitated the identification of chronic typhoid carriers. More particularly, it opened a window on the sources of trouble in typhoid endemic areas, permitting series of sporadic and apparently unrelated cases, often occurring over many years, to be causally related. Felix's publication in 1943 of his account of the new technique was accompanied by a paper by W.H. Bradley, a leading Ministry of Health epidemiologist, which vividly illustrated the utility of the technique in the field. Bradley showed how beginning with a single recorded case of a phage type previously unknown in England, a far-flung series of apparently unrelated cases of typhoid scattered across a wide area of Buckinghamshire and the fringes of Hertfordshire over a two-year period could be traced back to a carrier on a farm in Wiltshire that supplied milk to the affected area. Concluding his account, Bradley observed that phage typing permitted the identification of the typhoid carrier, quotes, no less precisely than the criminal by his fingerprint. Indeed, he argued, quotes, since infection like the criminal does not respect administrative boundaries, it was desirable to establish an epidemiological equivalent of the Central Criminal Investigation Bureau. Nor was Bradley the only commentator to draw the fingerprint analogy or to link the new types of investigation with the institutions of crime detection. In 1948, we find Graham Wilson noting that developments in serological and phage typing had led to, quotes, the virtual fingerprinting of many organisms. The British Medical Journal observed that the new Salmonella reference laboratories, quotes, vie with Scotland Yard in intricate methods of detection. And the Dean of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, by contrast, expressed some disapprobation of a proposal in 1950 to appoint epidemiologists to work directly to the PHLS. This, he stated, would, quotes, be analogous to leaving the detection of crime to the unaided efforts of the fingerprint experts. And Bradley, too, noted the importance of putting phage-type fingerprint evidence into its wider context. Quote, the way to the fingerprint bureau is through the emergency public health laboratory service. But fingerprints and phage-typing are no more than valuable clues 
and the apprehension of the miscreant still depends on the observations and deductions of the field investigators. Without determined fieldwork and the help of what may be a large team of practitioners and medical officers of health, these mysteries are not easily solved. The epidemiologist's response to phage typing carries amusing parallels with that of the writers of detective fiction to the arrival of the fingerprint in the business of criminal detection. And I'm here indebted to the work of Shandak Sengupta on the history of the fingerprint. The fingerprint, interestingly enough, entered the repertoire of criminal detection in the years around 1900, just as bacteriology was beginning to make its claims on epidemiology. The very first British conviction on fingerprint evidence occurred in 1902. And the, by 1903, the number of identifications had risen to nearly 4,000. Uh, about 70,000 fingerprint records were on file, and close to 350 records were being added weekly. As Sengupta notes, there was relatively little professional resistance to the introduction of fingerprinting in British police practice, the greatest resistance and criticism came from the writers of detective fiction. And fascinatingly enough, the resistance and criticism which Sengupta pinpoints came from two medically qualified writers, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Richard Austin Freeman. The latter indeed referred, in the Red Thumb Mark, published in 1907, to, quotes, the great fingerprint obsession. Both Cohen and Doyle and Austin Freeman emphasised the necessity of considering the fingerprint in the context of the whole crime. In other words, they were resolutely maintaining an environmentalist epidemiological approach to the problems of crime solution. Of course, from the writer's point of view, the fingerprint might cut away the whole genre of mystery fiction, just as, from the epidemiologist's perspective, the bacteriological laboratory might displace their own professional skills. In the event, the introduction of phage typing did not immediately do away with epidemiologists' appreciation of environmental context, but it did shift the centre, the pattern of investigation, away from broad epidemiological considerations in the first instance and onto the specific phage type responsible for an outbreak and the individuals infected by it. And this shift is well illustrated by the episode which Bradley dubbed, in what seems to me a clear reference to detective fiction, the tale of the leave-taking colonels. My last story, I promise you. This outbreak occurred during the Second World War. In the spring of 1945, in the fraught months leading up to D-Day, it's perhaps worth remembering that the D-Day landings had been Planning, planning for D-Day had been entrained for four years at this juncture and involved top-secret administrative preparations conducted by selected and high-ranking officials and forces personnel. Suddenly, in the spring of 1945, a number of important military officers developed typhoid. Consternation followed at the war office. Was this selective bacteriological warfare? Had the enemy cracked their careful preparations. Could it be, was it possible, partly coincidental? The War Office reached for the telephone and rang the Ministry of Health, requesting an immediate investigation. Now, the Ministry of Health knew 
that quite a number of well-to-do London residents in several of the city's boroughs were suffering from typhoid at this time. Somewhat unusual occurrence, as Bradley Riley noted. But they were by no means the only typhoid victims in the city, and the epidemiological picture was by no means clear. It was a case tailor-made to demonstrate the power of phage typing. The epidemiologists went to the well-to-do residents and, quote, made sure that the organisms causing their disease reached the central laboratory. In other words, they persuaded them to provide the necessary samples of urine and feces and personally conducted the samples to the laboratory. The lab results showed the victims all to be suffering infections caused by the same phage type, which happened to be one not previously recorded in Britain. Inquiry revealed that all these people had recently returned from holiday at a pleasant and fashionable hotel in Cornwall. And while one could be glad that they had, that they had, had time to recruit their energies prior to a time of great stress, they had chosen a bad time to visit that particular hotel. Of the people who enjoyed that holiday, five, including one of the colonels, died. It turned out that the hotel had a history of associated typhoid cases, and the source of infection was traced to an intermittent carrier on the hotel staff who had had typhoid in South Africa 43 years earlier. Since he was able to name the stream from which he had drunk the water that infected him during the Boer War, the investigators contacted South Africa. Cases of that same phage type were still occurring in the vicinity of that stream. In Cornwall too, water was implicated. So the hotel's well was contaminated with the hotel's untreated sewage, which drained into a sump close by the wellhead. And Bradley noted of the carrier, quotes, he had done a lot of damage in his life in a quiet way. His two sons had suffered typhoid in their youth, and his wife had died young of a disease which the investigators had good reason to believe was typhoid. Paying tribute to the advanced bacteriological techniques which had permitted identification of this carrier, Bradley now concluded, quotes, expert bacteriology is essential in the to the control of typhoid fever. So the development of phage typing initiated a significant shift in balance of this investigation between field and laboratory. Whereas outbreak investigators between 1900 and 1940 had been largely a question of field inquiries supported by supplementary bacteriological identification, phage typing set the laboratory at the centre of the inquiry. In 1951, Arthur Felix published an article significantly, significantly entitled The Laboratory Control of Enteric Fever. Here, the assumption of the laboratory's centrality to epidemiological inquiry was implicit and, that, and the role of the PHLS explicit. Felix set out an emphatic case for, quotes, the necessity for focusing laboratory control of the enteric fevers in a central laboratory and a central bureau serving the whole country. This argument was based on a review of the impact of phage typing and associated with administrative developments within the state sector. Within a decade of Felix's article, phage typing had been extended to Salmonella typhi murium, by then, the far most, then, then the far most, by far the most important of the food poisoning organisms, and the PHLS had assumed the principal role in epidemiological investigation into outbreaks occasioned by the Salmonella family. In 
With the shift of investigative expertise to this laboratory-centered institution, the language of investigation took on a more clinical and less literary professional tone. Epidemiological context remained important, however. Uh, in 1962, we find E.S. Anderson, who was Felix's successor as director of the Enteric Reference Laboratory, commenting that the identification of the source of a given outbreak of food poisoning might only too often be achieved only by weaving a web of circumstantial evidence gathered from public health workers, medical and veterinary bacteriologists, clinicians, epidemiologists, and farmers. Interdisciplinary teamwork continued to play an important part, even if the laboratory had a key role in making sense of the information supplied, and with phase typing as the crucial analytic tool. But the ways in which the scientific authority of phage typing was perceived had also shifted. Thus, Anderson observed, and I quote, the bare identification of an organism such as Salmonella typhimurium, without the use of the precision tool now available for epidemiological study, is comparable to arriving at a crossroads, crossroads and omitting to read the signposts to find which road to follow. Bradley's fingerprint for identifying epidemiological criminals had become a precision tool for epidemiological map reading. So what we're seeing here is a shift in the institutional and disciplinary culture of outbreak investigation. The men from the ministry were the inheritors of a tradition of observational epidemiology that had so many affinities with police work and the science and art of detective fiction as conceived by the writers of mystery fiction after 1890. Phage typing altered both the logic and the location of investigation. Felix and Anderson were trained microbiologists, located in reference laboratories and deeply engaged with the technical aspects of investigation. Anderson's cartographical imagery suggests a science that follows a known route to a specific goal, not the messy human business of observing phenomena and tracing clues in order to apprehend a miscreant. The science of observation and the science of detection had both been superseded, if I can be allowed an anachronism here, by a satellite navigation system which directed the investigator precisely towards the source of the epidemiological problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk slash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you. <laughs>